Welcome to Water from the Well, a work of the Church of Christ in Santa Clara. So again, we're talking with Mike Wilson, the author of the book, Inspiration to Ink, the big picture of how we got the Bible. Um, and do we have a date yet for when that's coming out? I'm hopeful the first week of June. It's been a long process, a little bit frustrated, but uh, the publisher says about the first week of June. Okay, great, great. Well, you do have a website that's live now that people can visit, right? Inspiration to Ink. That's a two, uh, is a, a number two, inspirationtoink.com. All right, great. So uh, today we're going to talk about events leading up to the first translations of the Bible into English. And the first question I'll ask you is, uh, when were these first English Bibles published? Aside from a few little scraps of, of translations here and there on, on old uh, medieval manuscripts, the first real English Bibles came out in the 1380s under a team of translators associated with John Wycliffe. And those translations were from the Latin Vulgate into what's known as Middle English and uh, all handwritten, the printing press would not be uh, produced until 1455 when the Latin Vulgate came out. And uh, ultimately a, a, a Tyndale New Testament was published in 1526. And then, uh, and then it was like the horse races, they just, uh, the English translations took off after that. But the Tyndale Bible, unlike the Wycliffe Bible, was translated from the original Hebrew and Greek. Um, the Wycliffe from the, the Latin, but even still, uh, the, uh, the Wycliffe translation is the number one English book that comes from the late Middle Ages. There are about 20 manuscripts of the whole Bible. There are 90 of the entire New Testament and uh, about 250 in all, including little scraps of books here and there. So it's the largest number of, of, of copies um, of, of any medieval English text. So, you know, one of the objections that people have is that you know, in the late medieval period, people couldn't read. So, you know, what was the, what was the point of uh, translating the Bible or making it available to people? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, actually, they considered themselves responsible for giving people the Word of God in packages that fit their ability to understand and learn. So uh, how would you respond to that? Well, it's true that the Roman Catholic Church gave people uh, stained glass windows in the cathedrals, biblical scenes painted on walls, plays depicting scriptural stories such as the Passion Plays and so on. And, and I suppose there's a kernel of truth to that if you, if you go way back into the Middle Ages when the, the mass of the, the populace couldn't read. But there's this, this pent-up demand to be able to, to have the Bible, to read the Bible, that, that was the spring was coiled so greatly that when it was finally released, it just erupted. <laughs> and uh, even even when the Roman Catholic Church gave the portions of the Bible in, in these various pieces, it was not to to give the Bible to the people to analyze on their own. It was rather to support the existing Roman Catholic structure. Um, an opponent of John Wycliffe in the early 15th century complained that the pearl of the gospel that Christ gave to the doctors and clergy of the church was being scattered abroad and trodden underfoot by swine. <laughs> <laughs> the common people had no need of the Bible. Way to was, win the was, people. It was huh? the, the official you know, version yeah. by the, the authorities that be. 
But but really, the, the Catholic Church miscalculated its self-assumed caretaker role, played this, this bureaucratic power game. And the reformers, on the other hand, tapped into this intense spiritual hunger at the grassroots level. Um, the people knew that the scriptures were locked up away from them, and, and, and there would be no contagion of the fire that, that erupted all over Europe once the Bible began to be translated into the common languages. People wanted to read the Bible as it was originally given. The Old Testament, the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation, and so on. One of the characteristic quotes that comes from that age that I just love is, is from Bishop Fitzralph of Armagh, which was a city in Northern Ireland. He said, I, I used to think that I had penetrated the depths of your truth with the citizens of your heaven until you, the solid truth, shone upon me in your scriptures, scattering the cloud of my error and showing me how I was croaking in the marshes with the toads and frogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote. <laughs> um, you know, until I took the class that you taught on William Tyndale, I didn't, uh, I wasn't even aware that uh, that type of opposition was made for people that wanted to translate the Bible into English. It was almost like the Salem witch trials, the, the opposition that they had. I didn't, I didn't realize that people were, were killed over it uh, until I took that class. So that was an eye-opener to me. Um, what were some of the major developments that unlocked the chains of suppression for, for this uh, Bible to finally be translated? There were three or four major developments. One was one that it actually backfired, I think, for, for the church and the, and the authorities uh, on April 4th, 1519 shortly before the Tyndale translation came out. In Coventry, England, six people were burned at the stake for teaching their children the so-called Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. in English. Burned at the stake. Well, that, that's an effort at suppression, but it backfired, and, and, right. and, and so it, it actually worked against the authorities. Mm -hmm. An another major turning point occurred, in, again, in the 1400s with uh, Johannes Gutenberg, uh, producing this this printing press, and you know it was it was revolutionary. Um, he was voted by the A and E network as the you know 1999 when, when they were analyzing the second millennium, you know who was the most important person from 1000 to 2000 AD, and um, you know Gutenberg was rated the number one person, and and, and the reason for that he he you know invented this printing press. But his purpose behind it was to, um, to, to actually print the Bible uh, as much as anything else. Um, he said, yes, it is a press, certainly, but a press from which shall soon flow in inexhaustible streams the most abundant and marvelous liquor that has ever <laughs> flowed to relieve the thirst of men. Through it, God will spread his word. A spring of pure truth shall flow from it like a new star. It shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause a light heretofore unknown to shine among men. So that was a major mm, development. Yeah. Another, another development was Erasmus, who came up with a, a Greek text that both Martin Luther and uh, William Tyndale used in their translations. Someone has said that, that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. And even though he, he never converted um, from Roman Catholicism, he remained a Roman Catholic. Um, he did promote 
the, the, the idea of the people having access to the Bible. In fact, Erasmus responded that uh, to that bird quote that you know he had expected quite another kind of bird when Luther came <laughs> along. But uh, he did say that Christ wishes his mysteries to be published as widely as possible. I would even wish that all women to read the gospel and read the epistles of St. Paul. He said, I, I wish that they were translated into all the languages of all people, that they might be read and known not merely by the Scotch and Irish, but even by the Turks and the Saracens, in other words, the Muslims. Hmm. I wish that the husbandman may sing parts of them at his plow, that the weaver may warble them at the shuttle, that the traveler may with their narratives beguile the weariness of the way. And so he wanted the, the Bible into the hands of the common people. Um, he wouldn't be the catalyst, ultimately. It'd have to be someone working outside the system, and that someone would be Martin Luther and then later on William Tyndale. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to, to uh, learn a little more about these, uh, these men you know, outside the, the words of the Bible who played a part in, in us having the Bible in the form that it's in today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Luther and his role in this? Luther was a Catholic monk, and um, he was in uh, Wittenberg, uh, Germany. And you had Johannes Tetzel, who had, had gone around Germany raising funds for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and he did so by selling indulgences. And that gave rise to the, the saying, as the coin in the coffer rings, so the soul from purgatory springs. So he would raise money so people would lessen punishment in, in purgatory. And Luther called that the pious defrauding of the faithful. And as the conflict came to a head on October 31st, 1517, which we would call Halloween, uh, he nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And, um, you know, he wanted to have an honest debate about all this. And, well, what happened is the Roman Catholic Church reacted violently to his, his call for, for reform. Pope Leo X moved to quench a monk, Martin Luther by name, and to smother the fire before it should become a conflagration. He called Luther a wild boar who had invaded the Lord's vineyard. Um, so you have this, this debate that broke out the right. next few years. On the one hand, you have the Catholic position epitomized by Ignatius Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuit order, and he, he defended the powers that be. He said, I will believe that the white object I see is black if that should be the decision of the hierarchical church. <laughs> well, Martin Luther took the other side of that, that uh, equation. He said a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a cardinal without it. Amen. That's the stuff of reformations. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and he got the ball rolling and it just mm -hmm. grew like wildfire. You know, uh, William Tyndale is probably the key figure in making the Bible widely available in English. And yet, you know, like I said, uh, until a few years back when I took your class, I hadn't heard of him. And I didn't understand his importance in the, um, in the handing down or the translation of the Bible uh, to the English language. Uh, but uh, that class had quite an impact on me. And now I understand. Uh, can you share uh, with the audience here what people should know about his role? It's true that... Tyndale is underappreciated, and I think he always will be. Um, J.I. Mombert said Tyndale's place in history has not been sufficiently recognized. Now, that may be the understatement of the year. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's a man who, who 
turned the tide by translating the Bible for the very first time into English from the original Greek uh, New Testament um, you know, documents and, and then in Hebrew, uh, at least about half the, the Old Testament from the Hebrew before he died. And um, early on, um, when, when uh, he was beginning to think about all this, a clergyman suggested to him, we were, were better to be without God's law than the Pope's. And, and he shot back. <laughs> Tyndale said, in, in a great comeback, he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Mm. <laughs> and so you know, his big impetus was to put the Bible into English in the hands of the common people in the original context so they could read it and handle it for themselves. He accused the Roman Catholic Church of taking away the key of knowledge and, and beggaring the people. Um, he gave us all these wonderful phrases in English from the, the Greek as he translated the Bible. And before, before, before William Tyndale, no one had read, you know, I am the light of the world, mm -hmm. or um, let this cup pass from me, or God is love, or I am not ashamed of the gospel, or be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Um, and so, and many others. That, that, you know, th these came from, from William Tyndale's translative uh, genius. Mm -hmm. And as David Teams, the biographer, said of, of Tyndale, God had found a voice, and the voice was English. And you have these little Tyndale New Testaments pocket size that came out in 1526. They could be easily tucked away in a, a gown or a sleeve, and concealment was mm -hmm. part of the charm of, of owning one. Right. Um, but, but Tyndale gave new hope to the sinner. Um, he, he gave new hope to the, the common man by, by uh, impressing upon him that you can, you can read this for yourself. You can interpret it for yourself. You don't need the hierarchical church to stand between you and God. Right. Good. You know, we uh, we witness in the New Testament that uh, Christians were persecuted, how the authorities really responded to them trying to spread the gospel. Uh, how did the authorities respond to the popularity of the Tyndale Bibles? Well, they didn't take too kindly to it. <laughs> yeah, I think this, so. This was a threat. Right. Because now the people could read it for themselves, they can interpret it for themselves, and that was a total threat to the powers that be. Mm -hmm. So Tyndale bashing officially became vogue among the powerful enemies. A bonfire was lit in London to burn the text of these, these New Testaments, and Cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio proclaimed no Holocaust could be more pleasing to God. Mm -hmm. And then according to one account, Bishop Tunstall of London purchased a heap of, of Tyndale Testaments in order to burn them, causing an outrage on the one hand among the common people, but also providing Tyndale some much needed funds to keep his work going. And so Tyndale was not impressed with all this. He said, finally, this threatening and forbidding the lay people to read the scripture is not for the love of your souls, uh, which they care for as the fox doth the geese. <laughs> but uh, you know, many of the the words of of his translation carried a uh, meaning. You know, words have meaning, mm -hmm. and so instead of translating ecclesia church, he translated it congregation. So it, it mm -hmm. removed the the hierarchical church concept right. from the from the uh, equation. Um, he translated presbyteros senior or elder 
um, instead of priest. Mm -hmm. he, instead of charity, he translated uh, agape love. Mm -hmm. um, favor instead of grace. You know, it, the idea that sacraments was removed with mm -hmm. that. Um, acknowledge instead of confess or repentance uh, instead of penance. penance. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of Catholic concepts that were removed. And, and his translations were better than, mm -hmm. than those that existed um, you know, up to that point, Latin Vulgate and so on. And so um, you had these secret, you know, Tyndale left England in 1525. He had to go to the continent of Europe to translate and, and never, never returned to England. Mm -hmm. But all throughout continental Europe, you had secret agents that were uh, you know, on his tracks trying to catch him, constantly frustrated by his stealth movements, um, his concealment, um, was greater than the secret agents and the bribes given to kidnap him. But he was finally betrayed by Henry Phillips, arrested at Ant Antwerp uh, in Belgium, uh, imprisoned in Philforty Castle for 16 months, strangled to death, and then burned at the stake in 1536. And um, his final words, and I, I have a, a woodcut of this in an old John Fox's uh, Acts and Monuments, uh, it's kind of a precursor to the, the uh, Book of Martyrs. But there's this, this woodcut that shows William Tyndale's final words as he's being, right before he's, he's choked to death and burned at the stake, uh, his, his final words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Hmm. All he wanted was right. translation of the Bible into the common language of his people, the English people. And so... We, it's hard for us to even begin to, to cope with, with what he had to face uh, or understand it and, and, and uh, appreciate the sacrifices of this one who wanted to put the Bible into our language. Right, right. Monumental. Well, I'm glad you're bringing uh, him to light as well as others who have uh, helped bring uh, the Bible along and, and, and keep it in the, uh, in the public eye and make it available to the common person. Uh, the sacrifices are, were huge, uh, and and uh, unfortunately largely unknown. But um, you know, I'm thankful that I learned about it a few years back, and I'm thankful for your book that's going to uh, shine some light on on uh, that and other factors that uh, brought us the Bible as it is today. I really hope to reintroduce people to the sacrifices of those who've gone before us, mm -hmm. so that we might have the many benefits that we have and even being able to open up a Bible for ourselves. Right. We take that for granted, but we should not. Yes, we do. And you know, I, also for us to just have the courage to, uh, to carry the message on from here. Yes, absolutely. All right, well, thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. For more about us, check us out at truthseekers.org. There you'll find our links to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.